Harlots of History contains explicit language, overt sexual themes, and discussion of sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harlots of History, a show by women for everyone, except children and pets, including our own. This show is created by our love of the shadier, inventive, and bold women, men, and non-binary humans that you cannot find in the history books. We will be exploring and educating ourselves, and hopefully our listeners, on infamous mistresses, lovers, sex workers, courtesans, madams, vamps, sirens, and of course, harlots. We will delve into their pasts, sordid or honorable, discussing the era that they happen to live in and the problems of the times. Be ready for some controversial figures. You may be surprised at how many harlots in history you end up loving or at least begrudgingly respect. So sit back, grab a fizzy drink, some salty snacks, and have some fun listening to Harlots of History, taking back the word harlot one episode at a time. Welcome to Harlots of History. My name's Emily, and I am a stay-at-home dog mom. And bartender. And and stay-at-home bartender. <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> yes. Yes, I can't bartend in a bar with people now, so I bartend for myself and my cats. <laughs> uh, and my name's Kara Mia. Uh, I am a stay-at-home mom of three, and I also am now a homeschooling mom. Just super fun. Takes up all my time. Yeah, she's a goddess. <laughs> and to all you other homeschooling moms, I don't know how you do it. I can't even take care of my three pets without going crazy. You guys are all heroes. <laughs> <sighs> all right. This is going to be part one of a two-part episode. And it's part of our spooky harlot series that we're doing because we think that Halloween starts on September 1st. <laughs> Yep, just like the <laughs> holiday season starts November 1st. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. I, Halloween for me starts like August 1st, I think. Whenever the Halloween decorations come out at Target. Mm. <laughs> what are we drinking? What are you drinking today, Karamia? Um, A slightly crappy rosé, but at least <laughs> out of a bottle. Never send a husband to pick out the wine. Never. <laughs> and I'm just drinking a white wine spritzer. Again, we're recording early in the morning, so... We are doing we our- coffee and wine, which is going to yes. be an interesting mixture for our hearts. <laughs> oh, God. our hearts are going to be beating so fast. <laughs> I, I'm drinking an ice matcha and I'm already pretty like jacked from it. And then I've got the wine too. This is a, it's going to be a fun episode. So let's get okay. started. I'm so excited to hear about this. I know next to nothing. Oh, good. Okay. Actually, I'm not going to tell you what the episode is because I have a little blurb that I'm going to read. Oh, the and then I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so let me paint you a picture. The year is 1888. The place is Whitechapel in the gritty East End of London. The time is 1.30 a.m. The debauchery taking place inside the three brothels tucked into the alleyways is starting to die down. The last horse-drawn carriage disappears around the corner, clomping down the cobbled streets, the moon casting an eerie glow on the rain-drenched stones. <laughs> A fog is beginning to creep up from the depths of hell. If you look hard enough as you pass through the town, you can see a woman here or there smiling at you from the shadows. Some are swaying from the overproofed rum poured out at the local tavern, others from hunger as their meager earnings from street walking have gone to feeding their children that night. As the night wanes on, fewer and fewer of the harlots can be seen until there is only one woman left. The fog is thick now and she wraps herself tightly in her shawl. 
She just needs one more man to be able to pay for her bed this evening. The street becomes eerily quiet for a moment until the clicking of boots against the cobbles alerts her to a possible client. Is a short man in a long overcoat and a plaid cap. He simply asks, will you? And she replies, yes. They disappear into the darkness down one of the long and grimy alleys. And that is the last time she is ever seen alive. <laughs> that was bleak. I know. That was brought to you by my English major. <laughs> that was, Sponsored. that was, yeah. I, yeah. So the scene is set. So totally. Gonna, like I can, I can imagine it. My, I was like hugging my cup of coffee, like listening, like intently. <laughs> So this is going to be part one of a two-part episode that delves into uh, other aspects of Jack the Ripper we may not always hear. So I wanted to get that scene set for you because I feel like when we hear about Jack the Ripper, it's always in this kind of romanticized, like, spooky Halloween, like, Halloween manner. And not necessarily romanticized, but I, you know, I feel like Jack the Ripper is one of those, like, tales that you hear and you're just super interested in it. Mm-hmm. And morbid fascination, I, definitely. It is a morbid fascination. So I, in part one, we are going to be discussing prostitution and sex working in Victorian England and what it was like for the sex workers at the time of these murders. Um, and then, so in the second part, we will be looking specifically into the lives of the canonical five. So that those are the five women whose murders were attributed to Jack the Ripper. Uh, I want to say right off the bat that I'm only focusing on these five for these episodes. We could launch an entire episode on the sex workers who were mur- murdered just in Victorian England. So sex work was a, a socially created system that was accompl- accompanied by a plethora of danger, murder being just one. I do also want to say that I believe there are many other women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper and that there are many, many other women and men, sex workers, who were murdered at this time but are not drawn attention to because their murders were not sensationalized. So I will just be focusing on those five, but I do believe there were other victims and there were many, many other victims of just sex working in general and not just in that time, obviously, all across And just from, like, the, like, you know, kind of pseudo-historical accounts that we, like, watch and read from this time, it's just, you almost wonder, like, how any police work was done at all. Oh, I know. No, no one, nobody had, like, records, really. I mean, London and the areas surrounding it were, like, mazes of all these little alleyways. And I just don't even know how anybody was expected to be brought to justice in those days. Well, they weren't. So, um, but, so I want to wait. I want you to weigh in when you can, because you just did the Wild West. Episode. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, so if you haven't listened to our tuber episode on sex work in the Wild West, you should go back and listen. Uh, Karen did an amazing job. It's Thank very you. interesting. You're welcome. <laughs> but we also see a lot of themes that are prevalent in both Victorian England and the Wild West as they were at the same time. Um, so this episode will probably reference the Wild West and a lot of the research you did, because I think it's important. But I think that the episode's a really good jumping off ground to get some background, because I think it's interesting. I mean, they're similar, but they're different, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, because they're different countries. But So, yeah, if you have any thoughts uh, when I'm doing this that come up, feel free to, to jump right in. So, 
this episode started because I was interested in Mary Percy, who is the only female name that was given as a possible JTR, and that's Jack the Ripper, and I may be referring to him as that <laughs> throughout this. Well, you know, um, I call him Rippy. Rippy. <laughs> God. So I searched for more than two paragraphs I could find about Mary Percy, and as I started looking into Jack the Ripper, I began to be more curious about his victim. So why did these killings happen? How was he able to kill so many women without being discovered ever? What was it like to be a prostitute in London at this time? And how did the women end up on that street corner that night? All this and more coming up. I am going to be talking about heterosexual prostitution. So homosexual prostitution also existed. But most of what we know is from court cases as male brothels were constantly being shut down and many men turned to parks or sidewalks. And that was where a lot of that occurred. I wanted to give a little background into homosexual sex work, but as I started to look into it, I realized that's an entire episode on its own. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about before, it's one that we will definitely be doing in the future. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So for the purposes of this episode and the next One, we will be talking about heterosexual sex work in Victorian London. My sources for this were uh, Wikipedia, Prostitution and the 19th Century in Search of the Great Social Evil by Joyce Frazier, British Literature Wiki entitled Victorian Prostitution, the British Library article by Judith Flanders, jacktheripper.org, and (laughs) revisitingdickens.wordpress.com. Such a wealth of knowledge, Emily. I know. Well, the second part of the episode is is mostly just Wikipedia. So So an influx of immigrants to London and specifically a large amount of Irish immigrants and Jewish refugees to the east end of London exploded Britain's population, as well as the Industrial Revolution, which led to more people, more jobs, more extramarital sex and more babies. Whitechapel housed many slums and became increasingly overcrowded and impoverished. Fifty five percent of children did not make it to age five. Constant tragedy coupled with poverty, alcoholism, and the scarcity of options available at the time led to the creation of a system that at its core was meant to keep the impoverished and the wealthy in separate spheres and trapped those born into it with an iron grasp. Mm -hmm. So that is something that we still see today. (sighs) Yep, definitely. It doesn't sound, some parts don't sound too, you know, foreign. (laughs) Yeah, and that is, yeah. I think recognizing, you know, we can look at these episodes and be like, oh my God, that, that's terrible. But also recognizing that those systems still exist yes. in 2020 in America. So the Vagrancy Act of 1824 coined the term common prostitute as a legal offense. The punishment for this crime was up to one month of hard labor. The acts also made it a crime for men to live off these earnings. The Victorians were obsessed with the ideal woman or the angel of the house. Women and men were siphoned off into separate sectors with the angel portrayed as a chaste maternal figure and the man as a masculine figurehead. This was also one of the reasons homosexuality was denounced and criminalized because the role of the homosexual male did not fit into any of the sharply defined boxes carved by Victorian ideals. Victorian England was all about repression. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I like yes, And I whenever you make people repress any sort of natural urge, it mm-hmm. tends to come out in very negative ways. Like yes, murder. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have a problem and we'll get to it about the word depravity. I just really hate that word. And especially in terms of like when it's in sexual 
depravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, now that I was, I was trying to think of like when I hear the word depraved, and it usually is always in a sexual context. Yeah, they they use it now, and I I just don't like it because people used to use it so often, like oh, sexual depravity, like if you had sexual urges or if you were gay or you know just outside the norm like it's just outside the quote-unquote norm and outside like cis gender roles yeah no totally yeah so I don't like that word no Uh, I I agree that's something I've never thought about before definitely yeah comes up a lot in my research. That's what they always say. So in 1791, a police magistrate approximated that there were 50,000 prostitutes in Britain. By 1817, this number had jumped up to 80,000. However, before we assign this high number to the number of sex workers at the time, we need to take a closer look at the definition of the word prostitution being used at the time. In an article on prostitution for the British Library, Judith Flanders asserts that the term prostitution was not being used to just describe a sex worker. Women who lived with men they weren't married to, women with children out of wedlock, or ladies just having casual sex for fun, not money, were all lumped into this group. Wow, we'd be prostitutes back in the day. <laughs> that was literally my uh, <laughs> my next sentence. I would still be considered a prostitute because I'm not married to men. <gasps> Gasp. I know. So this number was more accurately probably close to 20,000. There was a quote from a man in this article where he claimed he counted 185 prostitutes on his way home. However, the idea that all sex workers could be identified simply by a look was problematic. There wasn't a real way to identify the harlots from other working class women, except for walking up to them and asking them for some sex. And by some accounts, the only way to identify a real prostitute was because they held their skirts higher than other women. A common (laughs) showed a fourth inch more of leg. Yeah, they showed an ankle. Uh, A common practice began of men just following a woman who he thought looked like a sex worker, which led to more women being stalked by men as they attempt to go on about their day. Oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. I know. And we can. So you're not only, I mean, women are already getting profiled by men and now they're getting. Oh, followed. Yes. And then this is so stupid. Because a man wrote into a newspaper saying that two of his daughters had been followed through the streets and trying to draw attention to the problem, which invited a slew of victim blaming and other more pure upper class women chiming in with their favorite age age old adage of, but what were they wearing? And so this just started the, you know, thing that women should be wearing better clothes and should be keeping their eyes down and not making eye contact. What what a woman wears directly affects how a man will treat her, apparently. <sighs> yeah. And- because if she wears something that's too revealing, that's already consent. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I saw this cool thing today that was like consent is like if you were eating food with someone and they suddenly stopped eating, you would check in with them. You would check in to make sure they're okay. And consent's the same way. Like if someone's not okay, you stop and check in with them. You don't just assume that they're fine mm-hmm. and keep going. Oh, that's so uh, good. That's that's perfect because it's like, how do you explain that gray part of what, I guess yeah. it's a gray part of consent to like most people, including me, where it's like, how do you get someone to understand no once you've said yes? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, consent wasn't really a big It was non-existent thing. back then. It was, yeah, they, we'll get to it in a little bit, but there, like, it was in the laws, the age of consent was like kind of a thing, but like actual 
consent was not something that was that was really cared about or asked about or known about. So it was there maybe in like theory, but not in practice at all. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest problems with how prostitution uh, was represented at this time was that most, if not all, of the writings regarding sex work were penned by the middle class, who were extremely judgmental and a little inkling of the societal hardships that forced women into this profession. Some of the women were able to save money to get married and either get a better job or be a housewife that was afforded some security, but that was a really rare thing and that wasn't common. Yeah. So most of the women who were sex workers were in the working class and usually lived with men who they were not married to in the same class, uh, making it difficult to break the cycle of poverty. There was no middle ground between the Madonna horror trope, as we talked about, Mm -hmm. and the Wild West. Uh, Either a woman was chaste and perfect at upholding the Victorian ideals of Angel of the House, or she was a subhuman mistress of the underworld, prone to depraved and sinful urges, who brandished herself in front of men who were just slaves to their sexual desires. In this article, Judith Flanders mentions Nancy from Oliver Twist. While she is portrayed as a quote-unquote working girl, she may not have actually been a sex worker. In fact, we never see her with any clients or are given any proof that this is her profession. She was written as such because she was living with her partner, Bill Sykes. They were unmarried and they were both in the working class. At the time of Oliver Twist's release, the Prime Minister declared... I don't like those things in reality. Therefore, I don't wish them represented. So he stopped counting prostitutes and magically there were no, there was no more prostitution in all the land. Oh, <laughs> problem solved. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. He stopped testing them and they all, <laughs> and it just magically went away. Queen Victoria was fascinated and entertained by Oliver, but probably because she didn't realize it was extremely accurate commentary on the day to day lives of the working class. In fact, it can be argued that the entertainment aspect is one which Dickens employed to reach those of the middle and upper classes. Dickens was extremely involved in um, prostitution reform. And I, again, like you, I'm going to use the term sex worker, but I'm just using prostitution when it's relevant to. When it's in the the quote. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than condemnation. So no one wants to immerse themselves in the seedy underbellies that develop from wealth disparity. But when you add a bunch of cute kids and peppy music, it's easier to digest. Oh, boy. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm sure that they all dress like characters from Oliver Twist for Halloween. I had one of those, what's it called? Those gross poverty parties. Po- poverty parties? Is mm-hmm. that a thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's just full of wonderful stereotypes where people of means, you know, people, yeah, they, and they also do like minority oh parties. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that's stupid. I don't like that. Right. Appropriation. Um, <sighs> Yeah, yeah, appropriation. The three most common professions that led to prostitution in this time for women were those of factory workers, seamstresses, and servants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that's a lot, the same of, lot of similarities to the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, there's actually a study. We'll get to it in a second. Factory workers were in close contact with men at all hours of the night, which often led to rape. And after rape, it was extremely common for women to feel a loss of control and devaluing of her devaluing of herself as a human. Because her porcelain image had been shattered. Rape was not also separated from consensual sex in the idea that once a woman had sex, no matter what it was, she was... She was, yeah. She could be cast out from society because she was seen as impure, which is utter trash. But Could she be cast out of her job? Yeah, I think so. Uh, At least for, like, domestic servants. So I assume that it's also the case with others. So that's total bullshit, but we all know that. Yeah. So... Seamstresses often turned to sex working as a side hustle because there were too many qualified seamstresses and not enough jobs. 
They were paid very little, and it was difficult to support themselves or a family on their wages. They were often working in sweatshop conditions, trying to fill the large orders that flooded in one after another around ball season. Dances. <laughs> not balls. <laughs> not penis balls. Servants were often forced into sexual relationships with their bosses, and due to their social standing, were not able to say no. After this, reputation was ruined because they were considered unpure. And even an accusation of rape or sexual harassment would result in immediate firing. So there is a study done at Millbank Prison, which sounded a lot like the study done at your Wild West episode. But yours was done. Was yours done in America? Yeah. Okay. So this one was done in England and it also found, so yours found that 50% had been domestic servants. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, this one found the same thing. Um, and it also found that 90% of the women arrested for prostitution were daughters of quote unquote unskilled men. So just, I, I think that's just like what they would just a, a day laborer. I yeah. I think that's means work. That's a, yeah. Someone who's not in like the skilled trades, like not a Mason or not a yeah. woodwork. Yeah. Yeah. But also really quickly, I just wanted, I don't know if you've ever watched Alias Grace. No, but it sounds familiar. It's a really good mini series on Netflix. Uh, it's from about, like, I think three years ago. And it's, okay. exa- I mean, it's, it's a lot more complex than that, but it's literally like a woman who, I believe, did she come? She came to North America, but she was working in a house and she was a domestic servant. She had to, her family forced her and pretty much the gentleman in the house took advantage of her and she was kicked out and she was like left and she had like, you know, left out on the streets and she had like this mental breakdown and it just seemed all too realistic. Yeah. It's actually super good. Alias Grace. Yeah. I'll check it out. I think those things are, are good to look at because, again, you know, we were talking about this. This isn't that far past in our, like, re- our history. It's not that far. It's not that long ago. Or, like, getting into, like, just, like, great-grandma time. Great-grandma time, kind of. My great-grandma. Your great-grandma was born in, like, 1940. <laughs> <laughs> My great-grandfather was born in, like, 1800. Okay. So other common professions were house cleaning, launderers, or costermongering. Which is a cool word, but that's just selling items on the street. So that was like a common, you know, mm-hmm. costume monger. Uh, we will see in part two of this episode, many of the victims of Jack the Ripper used prostitution as a subsidy for these low paying freelance jobs. So a lot of them were trying to do other things. Like a lot of people would sell flowers and, you know, my fair lady immediately, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. An 1834 act titled The Poor Reform Law, which is stupid. I think that's a dumb name because it's just, I think it, it's one of that association that poverty, like anyone who's poor is needs reformation. Yeah. Because well, your system needs reformation. Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not a uh, personality flaw that yes, someone is, goes without things. Yeah. So this re- law stripped already threadbare legal protection for single or unmarried mothers. The bastardy, bastardy clauses in the act took away all aid for single mothers including ones that had ended up in the situation due to broken engagements and rape this led to an increase in sex working to supplement income as as a way for a mother to support her children and it also unfortunately led to an increase in infanticide there was an increase in baby farming where women would basically buy babies from mothers who could not care for them and they would either traffic them or adopt them themselves. So there were several women serial killers at the time who adopted this practice. We're not going to get into it. I only mention this to draw light to the impossible circumstances surrounding pregnancy and motherhood for women in this time and all time, basically. But Yes. Yeah. I feel so like I was a single mother with my first daughter 
And yeah, just when I think about that, I just, ugh. Yeah, like trying to do that. Like your your circumstances are already impossible enough. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like um, it's like Sisyphus. You know, like the Greek, he is like down in hell and he has to roll a rock. Oh, up, Sisyphus. up, up the hill. I, I or, it might not be Sisyphus. I think it is. Or I don't know. It's But he has to roll the rock up the hill every night and then he gets to the top and then every morning it starts over. So he has to go back to the hill and roll it up. And it's just mm-hmm. like this endless cycle. And that's kind of what it seems like. So considering the scarce job opportunities afforded to women at the time, it would have been you were literally... Right. Sorry, you were right. Is it? Yes, okay. you were right. Yeah. Um, we had shirts in my like AP Lit class that said, hug your rock or something based, <laughs> based on that. So it would have been literally impossible for a mother to support herself and her children without the help of a family or husband or any help. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how someone would would have done that by themselves. Given the already astronomically high mortality rate among children and the poor conditions of housing among working houses or brothels, women who had exited a marriage either due to a husband's death, divorce, abuse, or alcoholism, or a litany of other reasons were often forced to abandon their children to survive. This trauma of separation not only led to a pattern of alcoholism, but to sex workers being deemed unfit mothers by society. Of course, these condemnations were passed down based on assumption of moral depravity, as opposed to an in-depth assessment of the system that had forced these circumstances upon them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. It's yeah. just it's, heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Yeah. And you can only imagine like you're talking about pretty much, I think to some extent, people of color were treated better or more equally in England than as opposed to in the U.S. I'm not saying that they still weren't treated bad. It just seems that people of color were approached differently in this time than they were in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think they were. I mean, they, you know, people of color have never been treated as equals, but I think that there is a less... Not none, but a lot less slavery. I believe slavery was was abolished in England earlier, way before the not way before, but what decades before the U.S. I think so. I mean, yeah, still not soon enough, but no, 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 definitely. I was just saying, but they were, yeah, no, I I agree. They were, they definitely at least came around to that earlier than the U.S. did. So in other cases, sex work was a high paying, higher paying job than many of the other options at the time. Streetwalking was the most common form of prostitution, and Many of the women streetwalking were the ones doing it as a second job. It was also common for women to live in brothels or frequent the barracks of soldiers who weren't encouraged to marry. And if they did, they were not afforded extra income to support their wives. Women who worked in these places were generally afforded more privilege if they were, as they were taking care of their madams or the soldiers. And the streetwalkers were left to fend for themselves, battling disease, alcoholism, police brutality, harsh weather, and many other dangers. You just automatically get that mental picture of like somebody in threadbare clothes. Yeah. It's like their their gloves don't cover their fingers and Oh, I know. And it's it's so cool. Oh, stretch. You can hear here. her. <laughs> <laughs> she she knows that I love it when she goes into the downward dog pose. So whenever she's like she always just does it to make me feel better. Oh. <laughs> Are you doing yoga? It's her yoga pose. That's the that's the best thing I've taught my dog is to ha- go into the downward dog position when I say do yoga. <laughs> that's so, it. I'm done. So cute. She doesn't need to know anything else. Okay, so sex- street workers were left to fend for themselves, battling disease. All right, we talked about that. 
Because of this, many sex workers banded together to support each other and would raise money to bail each other out of jail if need be or share accommodations, like if they had them, for their friends who needed it. Well, that's a little spot of sunshine, at least. Yeah. All this horrible thing yeah. going on. Yeah. They, that was like one thing is that they would kind of form little gr- like bands of women. Like, yeah. Yeah. Victorian society trembled at the idea of prostitution, and at its core, the idea of a woman openly supporting herself in public was terrifying to the already shaky tower patriarchal jenga on which these ideals were built. Men, however, were not considered fallen, and reform was not considered necessary, as any sexual depravity, again, I hate that phrase, was seen as simply a part of heterosexual male nature, although the attitude did not extend homosexuality. Books were published elaborating on the pros and cons of different brothels and theaters in the area, alerting men to which houses they could attend, including this one. <laughs> Ahem. The New Swell's Night Guide to the Dowers of Venus, Curious Accounts of the Cyprian Beauties and Their Little Love Affairs, The Principal Introducing Houses, West End Walks, Chanting Slums, Flashing Cribs, and Dawson Kens, with all the rowdy dowdy and flash patter of Billingsgate and St. Giles, being a complete stranger's guide to the life in London. Ooh, sounds intriguing. I know. That's like, yeah, it's a mouthful. Actresses were often considered to be associated with sex workers as well, and men were instructed on ways in which to approach actresses with whom they wished to sex, literally written in my notes, uh, asking them to perform in private theaters for them. Oh my gosh. I know. And I actually read somewhere that Dickens left his wife of like 40 years or something for an 18-year-old actress, and how he asked her to come be with him was that he asked her to perform in private theaters for him so they were saying like yeah i guess his friends all thought that he was getting her to be a sex worker but she was actually just an actress but anyway yeah i didn't know that he left his wife for an 18 year old um not that surprising no it's not so the upper and middle classes were quick to pass judgment on those of the working class labeling them as immoral and quote-unquote fallen It was simpler to view them as choosing to be immoral rather than being born to a system that kept them trapped in poverty that supplied them with few options that afforded them escape. One article written at the time, according to Prostitution in the 19th Century, In Search of the Great Social Evil by Joyce Frazier, claimed that poverty created boredom and the impoverished were already classified as sinful. They turned to sex and prostitution as a fun pastime. Oh my gosh. I know. And actually, I would argue the opposite. I feel like poverty creates a full schedule. Try being a wife, mother, seamstress, then having to cook dinner for six people, put them to bed, clean the house, grocery shop, then have to go out on the streets, subjecting yourself to cold, physical harm, Jack the Ripper, etc. It's totally because they're bored. Jesus. This is like so... I know. I know. Just the inability of people to empathize with people this time just shocks me. Oh, I know. So institutions... Intended for reform began to pop up, although these were less focused on the well-being of the sex workers and more geared to improving the morality of the rest of society. These came in the form of Magdalene asylums, lockhouses, or reform houses. Magdalene asylums were established to supposedly rehabilitate sex workers, but they were essentially prisons for hard labor, mandated silence, and extensive prayer. The last of these didn't close until 1996. What? Yeah, I know. Well, that's shocking. I know. So, lock hospitals also existed for venereal diseases specifically, and sex workers could be confined in these unsanitariums, 
that's my word, for three months to a year in a form of incarcerated hospitalization. Reform houses were less barbaric than the last two, and Dickens actually had a reform house called Urania Cottage. It was considered slightly more successful, but they frequently rehabilitated the women to British colonies of South Africa and Australia. So he shipped them off? Yes, that's exactly, yeah, I, I, it was just, yeah. So it worked out for the rest of England because they were out of mm-hmm. England. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is why we're best friends. I literally have the exact same thing in my next sentence. <laughs> So I would argue that the living conditions in the colonies were not much better than they were in London, considering that we see these trends happening in the Wild West at the same time for the same reasons. I would hardly consider success to benefit from an out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude, and to simply ship someone out of the country is not to aid them in escape from a broken system. Do you know how many of these women were shipped to penal colonies? Mm Mm-mm. No, but I, I know that Australia was a penal colony, so I'm assuming that they also had one set up in South Africa, too. It's like, um, so Harlots, of course, uh, the second season, she steals something and they ship her off to America for seven years as a punishment. Yes, and, yes. Yeah, and I think that's such a stupid punishment. I mean, I know it was something that happened all the time. Oh, real quickly, this has nothing to do with anything, but I was just looking at uh, Richard's Instagram. Matt and I totally found a place to go camping on the dirt that's a dispersed campground. Yeah, do it. They're the best. We're gonna we're gonna see what happens with the shutdown if things shut down again. Obviously, if they do, we can't go. But um, we're planning on going after Polar has her final checkup to make sure she's all good for her like six weeks post op. I found three different campsites, so if one of them is too crowded, we can go. They're all around a lake. They're all like out in the wilderness, and everyone said that they're pretty um, mellow and chill. And there's not a lot of people, so that's what we're gonna do. Perfect. I know. Okay, that had nothing to do with anything, but I just got excited because we've been cooped up. All right, so an 1857 book by William Acton entitled Prostitution, considered in its moral, social, and sanitary aspects, presented sex work as an infestation. Yet it also drew controversy because it was believed to humanize sex workers, who upper and middle classes considered to be fallen, simply all around bad seeds. That just made me make a very sour face. Yep, me too. So... This guy did support the sanitization of sex work from venereal diseases. He supported some extremely violating acts, which we will get to. Um, So I think he's mostly trash, but he did drew attention to the system that created sex working, specifically the low wages that forced income supplementation with sex work and denounced the idea that prostitution was based on desire rather than economic need. He claimed... Vanity, giddiness, greediness, love of dress, distress, hunger, mark woman prostitutes, but not general sensuality. So obviously most of that sentence is trash. I do believe in the distress, hunger, and not sensuality. The rest can go right in the garbage. I mean, I feel like also back in those days, like anything that was like slightly good, like even reform, quote, like reformation, I want to use that word loosely. I feel like it came with a whole dose of bad No, totally. And people got mad at him because they're like, oh, he's humanizing these sex workers. He's so progressive. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're humans. They're human beings and they should be humanized because they are people. Obviously, our stance on this is pretty clear. We believe sex work 
should be legal and sex workers should be afforded more rights and they should be treated like humans, especially by police, but by everyone because they are human fucking beings. Sex working is a legitimate profession that takes a lot Mm -hmm. of skill and takes a lot of know-how and women deserve to be compensated fairly and be afforded health care and be afforded protected. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So this guy supported the Contagious Disease Act, which I'm going to talk about now. Ooh. They're terrible. They're terrible and stupid and horrible and awful. I know nothing about them, so tell away. Okay, so in 1864, 1866, and 1869, the Contagious Diseases Acts were passed. These acts were dubbed Steel Rape by feminist activists and Queen Josephine Butler. She's my literal new hero. I want a tattoo of her on my shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) In an attempt to stop venereal diseases that were running rampant, these acts made it legal for any woman who was suspected to be a sex worker, prostitute, as they called it, and as we talked about earlier, many women who were not sex workers were often mistaken as such to be stopped and forced to undergo an invasive exam to determine if she had a venereal disease. What? Yes, so they were stopping women on the street, working women, sex workers, anyone. So anyone who wore too, like, bright a color or too... Yeah, so that's why Josephine Butler called these acts steel rape, which they were. So they would be detained in lock hospitals until these either were cured or went dormant. I'm assuming that they went dormant because I don't have a lot of faith in their medicine at the time since, as we talked about in a couple other episodes, the cures were freaking arsenic and mercury (laughs) right yeah and it's also it's like syphilis has four stages and it goes dormant between the stages Mm -hmm. so yeah a lot of them too like herpes you have for forever yeah forever so they could just go dormant and then pop back up again i mean at this time there just wasn't really widespread knowledge about venereal diseases so so in in these acts there was nothing about education no of course not Okay. And men were not being stopped to check for venereal diseases. Only women were the ones that were being subjected to this steel rape. Even though one in three soldiers at this time who was hospitalized was being treated for venereal diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea. One in three soldiers. These acts made the streets inhabited not just by sex workers, but by working class women, dangerous and wrought with even more sexual abuse. And the worst part is, this sexual abuse was being openly sanctioned by the government. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Just another failure. This is so infuriating. Oh my gosh. I know. Drink your wine. (laughs) I'm going to take a big sip. (laughs) Uh, I will. All right. So the medical opinion of venereal diseases and the dangers of prostitution in general was not dedicated to the well-being and protection of women and sex workers, but was focused, like anatomy at the time, on the vitality of heterosexual males. Medical professionals had the erroneous belief that sexual excitement was dangerous in general and that men specifically could lose too much fluid during ejaculation. Somehow, Doctors thought that one ounce of semen was equivalent to 40 ounces of blood loss, which is about 20% of average blood volume. The sex workers were blamed to be the cause of the infections, and the common practice that men could catch the disease and transmit it to other women was again blamed on the woman. The Contagious Disease Acts did not stop men on the streets and subject them to invasive examinations, 
nor did they force incarceration on them in an attempt to eradicate venereal diseases, even though one in three soldiers at this time was being admitted to a hospital with gonorrhea or syphilis, as I previously mentioned. So, really quickly, because I just want to talk about some badass women for a minute. Josephine Butler and Elizabeth Wolstenholme, two queens, started the Ladies Association Against the Contagious Diseases Acts to get the acts repealed. Their original association against the acts, which obviously specifically affected only women, did not allow women, so the ladies were like, fuck it, fine, and formed their own. They fought tooth and nail with other badass women, and it took them 17 years to finally get the axe repealed. Oh my gosh. I know. So it took them 17 years to get the axe repealed. They were finally repealed in 1886. That's just two years before the known start of the Jack the Ripper killings. Josephine Butler also campaigned tirelessly for women's suffrage, better education, and the eradication of child prostitution and human trafficking. She even headed a European-wide campaign against sex trafficking that led to the firing and arrest of several Belgian police officers. What? I know. She's amazing. Oh my gosh, I totally want to see what she looks like now. Yeah. Yeah, she's so cool. She was an upper class or like a middle, upper middle class woman. And I think that's why she was able to get so much done because she was actually, people actually listened to her. Mm-hmm. She had a really tragic, um, her youngest child died after falling over a banister. So after that happened, she just devoted everything that she had to helping people and devoted the rest of her life to fighting for women and women's rights. Oh, she sounds like a gem. Yeah. Yeah. She's my next tattoo. So as the scene was setting for the Ripper killings, prostitution, or the great social evil, was at the center of Reformation causes. Josephine Butler's work helped to create the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1885. This act criminalized sex trafficking by means of force or drugging and raised the age of consent from 13 to 16 for young girls. It also cracked down on prostitution or sex working, which had been licensed as a necessary evil, and it unfortunately criminalized homosexuality, which remained so until the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. And there was something I read about her. She worked with a man to expose this European-wide sex trafficking ring. So they purchased a child that had been trafficked into this ring, and... The man, I think there was all this drama. He may have got arrested. Oh, they were they were kind of doing it as like an undercover sting operation to expose it. But they ended up exposing this European-wide sex trafficking ring that went incredibly high up. Politicians and royals and, yeah, probably. Yeah, good thing that's all changed. <laughs> all right. That was sarcasm. Oh, yeah. Super, super sarcastic. If you're ever in doubt, it's sarcasm with me. I'm not a monster. Okay, so here is a stupid quote from a moral high groundist at the time that was reported on jacktheripper.org. Quote, The fearful prevalence of a gross state of street prostitution attended by features of a very disgusting character, particularly between the hours of 10 and 12, at which it is not fit for any respectable female to walk about and young men cannot do so without molestation. End quote. So, again, with this insane idea that men can't not rape and that they must give in to their sexual urges at all costs and women must be driven down by society like lambs to a slaughter to be sexually sacrificed to them to preserve morality within the upper echelons of society. 
It comes from a set of corrupt ideals centered around the notion that sexual assault is more natural than a woman's sexual autonomy. The laws were centered on protecting men and middle and upper class citizens, but no attention was paid to the harsh living and working conditions coupled with a system meant to oppress women, especially those born into the working class. Unfortunately, it is a system that still exists today in America, especially for women and trans women of color. Yep. Yep. No words. It just makes you wonder, too, like, do you remember, like, especially, like, if anyone's, like, a huge fan of Jane Austen, like, Emily and I were, and the Bronte sisters, etc., all those books from that time, it makes you just wonder, like, these women, remember whenever they went out, when they were not married with a man, they had to have a chaperone, they had to have a this, they had to have a that, someone who was there to guard their purity. It just also makes you realize, like, how gross that whole situation actually was too. It's super gross. And I really feel that virginity is a social construct that is, was invented to, you know, keep women pure and like the angel of the house and make them feel bad if they lose this precious gift where obviously sex can be a really big deal and can be really important. But, you know, it's not this, it isn't this thing that should be in the hands of men, especially white men deciding who, where, when, how a woman has sex, you know, unless it is to protect them, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, it just, especially at this time, it wasn't to protect them. It was to protect quote unquote decency and protect against moral depravity. And, you know, it's something obviously we still see today with men trying to tell women what to do with their bodies. And anyway, it's just, it's just so sad to see how dispensable these women were. Mm hmm. And yeah. I think I think one thing that's really cool about this that you're doing is that especially in this time and even when talking about like the Jack the Ripper case, you only hear prostitutes generalized. You know what I mean? No one ever really delves into it whenever anyone talks about, you know, Jack the Ripper. No one ever talks about sex working at that time. You know, they only yeah. say like, oh, and it was a bunch of prostitutes and, you know, prostitutes were doing things they shouldn't do. And I'm just saying I'm quoting what other I've heard other people say. Right. But yeah, it's just really cool that you're actually delving into into this and addressing them as sex workers and talking about, you know, what was actually going on for them at the time. Cause I know next to nothing. Thanks. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, I obviously knew a little bit about the folk legend that is Jack the Ripper, but just from what I've heard, you know, throughout the years. But when I started looking into it, I really wanted to know more about the women, more about the sex workers. Cause I think it's kind of a common thing, especially with newer serial killers to go after sex workers because, you know, people aren't looking at them. They are usually a lot of them on the streets and a lot of them don't have family at this time, especially. And people aren't really going to bat an eye if they walked in an alley with a mysterious man. Well, and also sex working in the U.S., I mean, as we know, you kind of have to exist outside the law today. So it's like you're already doing something that you don't want reported to cops. So no one actually knows where you are, who you're with, what you're doing. And sex workers can be a little bit more transient than the normal person. And they don't stay in contact with their family necessarily, or they're not reported missing for days because of this. And Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's look up some resources that we can put on our website um, for sex workers so people can go and find either petitions or um, just, yeah, just resources that people can look at. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So according to jacktheripper.org, 
The Ripper victims were directly affected by the crackdown on brothels and on prostitution in general. The Social Purists and the National Vigilance Association were big supporters of the act. They basically believed that sex workers were annoyances and made life unbearable for upstanding citizens. It is an unfortunately common practice to dehumanize and to other sex workers in order to maintain moral superiority. Police officer Charles Warren thought it was a waste of time to police brothels and that police energy needed to be focused on more serious crimes. He still believed it was pointless in a letter he penned dated October 31st, 1888, which was after four official Ripper murders had already been committed in a sea of other murders and violent crimes against sex workers. Basically, he just wanted to contain but not stop it and it became too much of a hassle for them to deal with. And I don't think it should have been stopped, but I do think that there should have been more police protection for sex workers at the time, especially after these killings started. Exactly. Yeah. So they didn't want to lose sleep over taking the cases to court. That is paraphrased from an actual quote. In 1887, Elizabeth Cass was arrested on suspicion of prostitution because she was walking alone at night to buy gloves. The only evidence against her was that she was out at night by herself, something a woman with morals should not do. She and her employer both fought the charges in court, which led to a police order not to arrest any woman on suspicion of prostitution. Which was good. Yeah, it's a small jump forward, yeah. But they should have still been protecting them, but... You know, this escalated the amount of streetwalking exponentially in the year before the Ripper killings and paved the way for more heinous crimes against sex workers to be committed as the spotlight was turned away from them, leaving them to fend for themselves in the dark. And that sets us up for episode two. Wow. <laughs> dark. Dark, dark, yeah. dark. Yeah, like I'm I'm just excited to hear like specifics about these victims because it's you're giving power to the victims, which is really important, especially in this true crime age. You know what I mean? Like we're all very like obsessed with serial murderers and killers and blah 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 blah. All these Lo oh, yeah. lovely people but i'm just saying we're so fascinated by the killers never the victims and i love victim power stories that's why i love the podcast i survived which was a tv mm -hmm. show i absolutely adore the that podcast but i'm just saying like giving power to the victims is so cool i agree there's some crazy stories on that and like every time i listen to my favorite murder i just always listen to the episodes about women who are these in these impossible situations and they're like, I just have to survive. And they do. Yeah. And somehow get themselves out of these scenarios and they freaking survive. And I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. And I survived just released as a podcast a couple of months ago, I believe in May. So it's okay. really cool that, you know, just like Dateline, they're putting all their episodes in podcast form for people who need a binge while doing dishes and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've all been there. Okay. Should we do our happy harlot? Yeah. Let's do it. You go first. Okay. I'll go first because I was thinking about this. I have something that I want to say about the happy harlots before I go. Okay. Yeah, please. So this has been, these past couple of months have been really hard for everyone. Um, I know with quarantine and with lockdowns and a lot of people lost their jobs, myself included, it's been super freaking stressful and mental health is a really big thing that I think a lot of people have been struggling with. And I just want to say that uh, we are both huge champions of mental health. And that's something that we're really big on. Definitely. 
Yeah, so I just feel, um, you know, I have, like, I'm sure everyone does, good weeks and bad weeks. Uh, this week was just a little bit harder because we've been stuck inside and I'm missing everyone back in the Pacific Northwest. But one thing Matt and I have been really trying to do that has really helped us is that we've been trying to tell each other every day one thing we're proud of and one thing we're grateful for. So one thing we're proud of each other for and um, really helped bring us close together, especially with quarantine. I mean, I know, you know, we've been together four years and we've lived together almost the entire time. But just being stuck in the same house with each other for four months and for the first two of those was a one bedroom apartment was super rough. <laughs> And have no, and Emily, you love your space just like everybody does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do. I really do. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to say, you know, we do these happy harlots and sometimes we have really good things. And then sometimes it's, you know, a struggle to come up with something. But um, one thing that I've been really practicing doing during this time is just finding the little things in everyday life that make you happy and make you smile and you know, they may not always be like huge, big things that you did, but they're important just the same. Oh, I, I love that. I love when these like little things that other people see as so normal make you so happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, just, just like the, like, I mean, for me, like the smell of like me grinding up my coffee beans or like I'm up so mm -hmm. early that the sunlight is hitting my eyes from a different corner of the house or, you know, just mm -hmm. stupid little things that, oh, they make my day. Yep. No, I love that. Yeah. So I guess my happy harlot moment was uh, we went down to this creek by our house that we have. It's really nice. No one's ever there. It's so quiet and the water is not too cold. So you can walk in. All the lakes in Colorado right now are either too cold or too crowded. They're or like up in Rocky Mountain and you can't get up there without a reservation. Anyway, so we walked down for the first time in a while yesterday and I ordered some floaties um, that are going to be here tomorrow. So we might go down later in the week just to make it a little bit more fun. But we've also been having a lot of thunderstorms. So that's also been really nice because I missed thunderstorms. And we just sat on our porch and watched them. And the cool anyway, air. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's been so hot here. Um, so anyway, we went down and we had watched Zodiac earlier in the week. So it's like an older movie about the zodiac killer and there's this part where this man and woman are by the lake they're by themselves and she's like oh there's a man there oh he's on the trees oh i think he has a gun and then he goes and kills them so we watched that like two days before then we went down to this creek where no one's ever there and i'm like oh my god matt i saw this guy and i was like oh my god who's that guy he's behind the tree and then i was like wait I think he has a gun. And then we realized that it was just a fishing pool. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, what do we do? I was just in the water staring at him. And he was sitting there just like by himself. So Matt and I were like, we don't want to be here. We were like contemplating going up the bank and climbing up and going out the completely opposite way. And then we ended up leaving and he ended up being like a super nice, normal guy. Still, still. Yeah. Like he totally, you know, that was such... It totally could have been. We were all by ourselves. We just watched the movie. But, um, yeah, it was just really nice to be down there and, and be outside. We've kind of been stuck inside because Polar's been back on bed rest. So we haven't been able to go anywhere. But uh, So that was my happy harlot moment, not being murdered and being outside. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, my happy harlot moment 
is also, I've been kind of, uh, we've been binging on nature. We went and had a very successful camping trip all this week with all three of our kids. One of them's a toddler, one of them's a baby. But I would say my happy harlot moment was yesterday. My husband and I got to be alone and I went without a top swimming (laughs) in a lake and it was so fun. It felt I, so good because I, I mean, the lake was perfect for swimming and I did not have my swimsuit with me and I was like, I'm going in. <laughs> I love that. I know it looks so pretty. Where is that lake? Rattlesnake Lake is uh, about 20 minutes uh, east of me on I-90. Okay. I would say I've never seen it. Yeah. It's, it was amazing. It was beautiful swimming. It looks amazing. I know. I want to be there so bad. Anyway. Um, okay. Well, thank you for joining us um, for this spooky session (laughs) and come back for part two bye thanks so much for tuning in guys our music is by lloyd rogers and our cover art and our editing is by us if you enjoyed listening we would be tickled if you left us a five-star review on apple podcasts you can always email us at harlotsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to get back to you with something witty snarky or boring We are also on Instagram and Twitter as Harlots of History. We love you all, even the haters.